Go ahead and turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. As we continue our series called Servants and Stewards. And today we're going to see the passage that gives our series its name in 1 Corinthians 4. How many have ever played fantasy football before? How many of you know what it is? Okay, uh-oh. All right. Fantasy football is where people try to keep competing even though they're not good enough to really compete. Okay, let me let me ex- explain that. They'll get around, a group of guys, maybe a group of gals will get around and, and they'll have a little draft. They'll, they'll choose players from the NFL, from the fo- National Football League, and depending on how those players do, they make the most passing yards, the most touchdowns, most catches, best running, all that kind of stuff. They get points, and they accumulate all these points. At the end of the week, they can have a team that wins. So you see how that goes? You can win by just picking people and watching football games. That's what fantasy football is. That's why it's a fantasy, right? Fantasy football. Well, there has been a, a satire comedy video that's been made where they mocked or copied the idea of fantasy football with pastors. And it was called a Celebrity Pastor Fantasy Draft. Okay? On the board, the people that could be selected were gospel-preaching, faithful pastors, and others. Okay? Um, And false teachers, frankly. They were all up on the board. And... um, they were choosing these different people based on, so instead of like rushing touchdowns and interceptions and all those kinds of things, based on things like their books are for sale at the airport. Like they, so many people buy their books that even when you go to the snack counter at the airport, their books are for sale there, okay? Things like being good looking or muscular or having the best hair, which that's not happening, sorry. So that's why I stand this, if I was in this direction, you'd get that joke a little more. Uh, things like having the highest applause breaks per sermon. Like people standing up and clapping and that. Uh, one of them was, this person was planning to raise $54 million for a private jet. Uh, others, because they hang out with celebrities. Or because of the numbers of campuses that this church has. Or because they have great production quality at their special services, so like Christmas and Easter. Those, they don't miss a beat on those. They're perfect. They're flawless. Or even cool accents. All of these kinds of characteristics were the reasons why, and it was a, it was a joke, okay, it was a satire. Uh, this video was made to select these pastors as to which ones were the best, quote-unquote the best. Does that make sense? And that's sort of funny, and it's sort of not, right? It's also sad when you think about the, the truth of it. And while all these could certainly catch the eye of of many people, none of them, none of those characteristics are actually impressive to God uh, or anywhere to be found in Scripture. And before I go any forward with this, I'm going to leave my notes for a second, we also have to be careful that we don't get jealous of those things or think that they automatically make those pastors ungodly. Just because a pastor has great hair doesn't mean they're a false teacher. You understand what I'm saying? Great, good for him, right? Uh, that's not the measuring stick at all, period. Some of the things I mentioned, you wonder, right? But uh, those things are not measuring sticks. Now, if none of those kinds of characteristics, if none of that is what God has called pastors to do or to be, then what are they supposed to be like? 
And how could we rightly, biblically discern whether a church leader, a pastor, is pastoring in the way that God would have them to? And are pastors the only ones who are held to any sort of standard or expectation in the church? Those are some questions that we have that this passage today in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 is going to answer for us. So let's look into God's word, starting in verse 1. Paul writes this, This is how one should regard us. Us from the context, from and in the immediate context, this is Paul, Apollos, Peter, these are pastors, okay? Uh, we'll see later on as we go through this passage uh, that what's being applied to the pastors is also going to be carried on in a way to the rest of the church as well. Uh, but for now, we're going to focus on pastors. It says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. The word servants there in the Greek means under rowers, galley slaves. These are the ones who would, as slaves, sit in the guts of the ship at the very bottom and row. Maybe you've seen movies or ideas of those guys that would be down there. They weren't dressed real well, were they? They weren't treated very well. They were, in a sense, the lowest of low. And they literally were in the ship, right? That is what that word comes from. This word, over time, morphed in its usage, in in the vernacular and people speaking, to relate to those who were subordinate. They were underneath some other authority. So, pastors are servants. They are under the authority. They are subordinate to Jesus Christ. Pastors cannot serve the church of Jesus Christ well if they're not serving Jesus Christ first. If he's not preeminent. Which, if you think about it, is far better for you. It's far better for you. And it's better for me too. If I remember uh, that I only answer to him, I will serve you better, church. I will serve you better. And the expectations will always be clear. If I start instead to think that I answer to the church and to each person individually in the church, the expectations, you understand this, the expectations would shift all over. And I would become a bad servant, a bad leader, to my detriment and to yours. Hebrews thirteen seventeen says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As those, this is the part that I wanted to hear for sure, as those who will have to give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. That, that passage is also uh, one of the reasons why we believe in the local church. Who am I going to give an account for? First Baptist Church. And so that's why we need to know who's in First Baptist Church and who's not. Okay? Now the follow-up question to all of this uh, may be, well, how do you know if the leader is leading biblically or unbiblically? What well, says there, obey your leaders and submit to them? What makes us go, wait a minute, on that statement? We might have a concern as to whether that person is leading biblically or unbiblically. Is that a fair question? And the answer is yes. Uh, the answer is right there in the text, though. It says that the pastor is giving an account to whom? And if the pastor is trying to lead the people to Christ and preparing to give an account to Christ, and in doing so is pursuing biblical truth in his teaching and practice and life, then things are good. Things are good. They may not always be pretty 
in the world's eyes, but they will be beautiful in God's. If the pastor's trying to lead, quote-unquote lead, by making people happy, emphasizing the people, right? Making people happy, and is more fearful of a negative response from a certain family or a church patriarch or matriarch or any person or people, things are bad for the pastor and for everybody. That's not biblical. If the pastor is trying to lead, quote-unquote lead, by making the people feel like they're going to give an account to him, and causing, uh, through teaching and maybe even manipulation or coercion or other things like that, making the people of the church think that they are un- the under-rowers or the galley slaves and that the pastor is who they are ultimately accountable to. You see that flip? That's really bad. And by the way, when the Pharisees arrested and rebuked the apostles for preaching, preaching Christ, preaching the gospel... Peter told them what? We will obey God rather than man. Remember that? And the Pharisees weren't saying, we are obeying man and you should too. What did the Pharisees think that they were doing? They thought Christ was a sham. They were telling the apostles, you'd better obey God and stop preaching Christ. But they were wrong. They were wrong. Both thought the same thing and that they were serving God, but only one was right. Peter's declaration is a clear help to anyone who would find themselves in a situation where the leadership is no longer obeying God, even though they might say they are. Obey God rather than man. Put yourself under leadership that is going to point you to Jesus, who is a servant of Christ. The pastor's role is to be a servant of Jesus Christ. And then it says, stewards of the mysteries of God. A steward. Uh, This word is a house manager. Think Joseph being over Potiphar's house. He was responsible for the well-being of the house, but none of it belonged to him, right? None of it was his. But the house in this context isn't the church. We might think it's the church. Uh, In this passage, it's not, though there's similar passages that give that kind of responsibility or oversight to the pastor, to shepherd in that way. This passage, though, requires of pastors to be stewards of the mysteries of God. It's the truth found within this book, within the word of God. The mysteries of God, what God has revealed to man. The whole counsel of the word of God. 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, many of you know this one by heart. All scripture is breathed out by God. How much? All. And it's profitable for teaching, for knowing what's right, for reproof, knowing when I'm not, and I meaning all of us saying that, right? I'm not. For correction, what is right, how to get right, and for training in righteousness, how to grow in doing right. It's life-changing. All of it is profitable in that way. That the man of God may be complete, and the word there means perfect, equipped for every good work. So the pastor's job, my job, is to steward and to teach you from the truth of God's written word in the Bible. I'm responsible to make sure you get the whole truth. I'm responsible to clean house, as it were, when there's any false teaching or concerning certain passages to help you study and understand the scriptures. I'm responsible to teach you what the word of God says and not what I think with occasional support from God's word. 
That's why we've been going through, does that make sense? This is why we're going through these first several chapters in 1 Corinthians verse by verse. That's why when we go back to Genesis in a few weeks, we're going to pick up where we left off after Genesis 11. Uh, That's also why I'm a biblical counselor. When I stand before Christ, my Savior and my Lord, and give an account for how and what I taught you, church, as a steward of the mysteries of God, I will be responsible for whether I taught you what the Word of God says or whether I taught you the philosophies of Andy, falsely supported by the misuse of God's Word. I will be held accountable for that. That's a big deal. (laughs) That's a big deal. Pastors must remember that they are first servants of Christ in order to be mindful to be good stewards of the mystery of God. If I do it in the opposite order, I might mess it up. I'm first a servant of Christ, and when I am there, I will have the confidence, uh, the right mindset to properly steward God's word. Does that make sense? Okay. Verse 2. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. These stewards of the mystery of God must be found faithful. So this task, this service that God has given four pastors to do, when there are so many characteristics that we might like in our public speakers, God only requires this, faithfulness, trustworthiness. Does the pastor preach and teach the counsel of the word of God? Does the pastor preach the word of God Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday? Does the pastor teach the word of God consistently, faithfully, over all the years of their ministry? Does the pastor continually counsel people from the sufficient word of God each time counsel is sought? These things are not encouraged, but required of God's stewards. Verse 3 says this, But with me, that's Paul, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you, he's speaking to the Corinthian church, or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself. This means that he just has, he has a clear conscience. He's not aware of anything against himself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Some important truths from these verses. Uh, Number one, human judgment. Human judgment means nothing compared to the Lord's. There's no comparison. There's no comparison. Human judgment, think about this. Human judgment is lacking in authority. Even true authoritative human judgment only goes so far. It's localized. Human judgment is localized, meaning, again, it goes so far as that human authority is present. And if it's just a person that you know, that you know from work or that you know in your neighborhood, that judgment from that human only goes as far as their parameters, right? It's localized in that way. It's temporary, and it's fleeting. It's fleeting. You could be on somebody's bad side one day, be on their good side the next, 
and go for the ride the next two days after that. And human judgment is often wrong. It's often wrong. However, God's judgment is the final authority. Yes? It is eternal. And it is always right. Always right. Praise God for that. And that is a good thing, isn't it? (laughs) We might think, oh no, God knows everything. Oh yes, and Christ died for all of it. Amen? He didn't miss something when he died on the cross and go, oh, sorry, there's that. No, it's all paid for. It's all paid for. In that last couple words of the verse we're going to get to here, commendation. That's a huge thing. Judgment, though, it makes sense. It makes sense to give people less sway in your thinking. Less sway. Don't, don't worry about the judgment of man as much. Let's help ourselves out. Let's reduce our stress and our anxiety levels in our hearts, in our evaluation. Let God be big. He already is, but in your mind, acknowledge it. God is the one who is big, bigger than we could think. And man is small. Secondly, Paul reminds us that a clear conscience does not necessarily equal righteousness. They're not just the same thing. Our conscience needs regular calibrating. We talked about that last week from from chapter 3. Our consciences need regular calibrating with the Word of God. Sometimes we feel right about things we ought not, and sometimes we feel wrong about things that we ought not. Uh, And there is absolute truth. There is absolute truth. Um, Think about this. In our culture, in our culture, where everybody's opinion is supposed to be considered just as valid and just as truthful, depending on how they feel about it. Is that true? Is that biblical? Is there such a thing, such a thing as absolute truth? And if I just feel good about something, even though it's wrong, does my feeling override facts so that it can be my truth? Because that's a terminology that's growing in in, uh, popularity. Is there such a thing as my truth and your truth or alternative facts? Who who is the one who knows all truth? (laughs) God does, right? And and God's word is faithful. And, And so I can't let my feelings or even maybe a misguided, out of whack conscience, clear conscience, Dictate to me whether I've arrived or not, whether I'm okay or not. God's word is the final authority. And so we do well, remember, when we let God's word refocus and shift our consciences into the exact place where God would have them to be. We ought to have a clear conscience and hope to achieve that in conjunction and, and along with the principles given to us through God's word. Okay? And then number three. Because God is the judge, because God is the judge and the giver of grace, it is foolish for us, for humans, to pronounce judgment on anyone before the day of judgment. It's foolish for us to pronounce judgment on anyone before the day of judgment. And here's, here's why. Philippians 1.6. Remember this verse says, I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in you, who's that? Who began a good work in you? 
That's the Lord, right? Will be faithful. He will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So I was lost and dead in my trespasses and sins. And God began a work in me. He brought me to life in Christ. And he's promised he's going to make me to become just like Jesus Christ. And the God who started that work in me has promised that he's going to take that work and bring it to completion at the day of Christ. So every single Christian had a starting place that was very much the same, dead in our trespasses and sins. And we have a finishing place that is very much the same, conformed to the image of the Son of God. Where we are in between, that's going to vary, yes? We're going to be in different places in between, but we all have the same starting place, and we all have the finishing, same finishing place, and we all have the same source of power for that ride. And it has nothing to do with me, and it has nothing to do with you. It is all of the grace of God. And so what is there left? We all start dead. We all now have life. We are all headed towards righteousness progressively, and we're all headed there by God's grace. Remember that any Christian... Any Christian that you get, you might get all judgmental with is not inferior to you. Any Christian who gets all judgmental with you is not superior to you. Paul called himself the chief of sinners. And one day when God finishes the work in us, we will be made to be without sin, perfect in righteousness. And remember this, our judgment, the judgment for Christians is a commendation not condemnation. There is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All of that wrath has been paid. It's been absorbed entirely because of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So all that's left for us to receive is a reward, right? For the gold and silver and precious stones, for those things that we did for Christ. And why did we do anything for Christ? Because God. (laughs) Praise God for all of this. For all of this. And so when we see each other and we see, you know, I see you mess up and you see me mess up and and we have these thoughts of, I can't believe they would have done that. Why not? And, and, And what's that person going to have happen to them if they're in Christ? That's going to be a thing of the past. That thing that they're doing, that thing that you're doing, that thing that I'm doing is going to be a thing of the past. Does that mean we ignore it? No. But it does mean we don't have a condemning attitude. Right? There's a difference between being discerning and judgmental. There's a difference between pounding somebody on the head, thumping them with the Bible, and speaking the truth in love for their benefit, for their joy, for their growth, for their growth. Realize, too, in the immediate context, this judgment is being applied to Paul in this passage. Paul, Apollos, Peter, pastors. So he's talking about even just judging pastors. And sometimes, like in this fantasy draft that I was just talking about, in a sense, that's what's happening there. And it's kind of silliness, isn't it? (laughs) Because we're all in the same ride together as far as our righteousness is concerned. But Paul is also saying this in relation to all Christians. So it's for judging pastors, but it's not just pastors. This is for everyone. And realize this too, in in 1 Timothy and Titus, when the qualifications are given for pastors, if you go through those lists, how many of those things aren't also for everyone else? 
And there's really only two. One of them is not being a novice, not just a baby newborn believer. And the other one is able to teach. Those are the only two that are not for everybody else. And obviously, a person who just put their faith in Christ can't do anything about being a newborn believer, right? They need to grow and not be there forever. But that's where they are. That's not wrong. And not everybody's gifted to teach. That's basically the only one. (laughs) So, this goes for all of us. And this, of course, brings up the question of judging. This is a tough one, isn't it? The idea of judging. What is right? What is wrong? Who can? Who can't? What is even the definition of it? And Matthew 7, 1 says this, Judge not that you be not judged. Have you heard that verse before? What kinds of things have you heard it being used for? Sometimes for condemnation, right? Which is kind of ironic. It's a favorite verse for many, but what does it mean? What does it mean to judge? Uh, We are told not to judge others, uh, but the Corinthians were also told in the next chapter in 1 Corinthians 5 to remove someone from the church because of their sin. We are told that the church isn't the judge of pastors, but in 1 Timothy 5, there's a place for disciplining leaders. We are told that Paul does not even judge himself, but then later in 2 Corinthians, we're commanded to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. Are you saved or not? Uh, Jesus even said in Matthew 7 not to judge, but then says in John 7, make a right judgment. (laughs) So don't be concerned, okay? Scripture's not contradicting itself. Uh, Much of the apparent controversy comes from the idea that everyone's opinions... And moral beliefs are, like we said before, equally valid. But they simply aren't. There is such a thing as absolute truth, and the creator of the universe knows what truth is, so we can be confident that we have it in the word of God. When we see prohibitions for judging, when we see prohibitions in judging, for judging, in scripture, they are linked to self-righteousness, pride, legalism, and so on. Those kinds of things. Simply put, it is wrong, it's wrong to condemn a person for not being just like you. In those contexts, in those passages where judging is condemned, that's the basis. It is wrong to condemn a person for not being just like you. And when we see encouragement for judging in Scripture, it is linked to the idea of discernment. Discernment, applying scripture to determine what is right and what is wrong. It is right for a person to assess a situation, assess an action, and observe whether it pleases the Lord or whether it doesn't. Whether it is sinful or whether it's righteous, with a humble understanding that we do not know people's hearts, right? And it is right for us to encourage each other in righteousness, When we see somebody in sin, do we condemn them? Do we say, you're going to hell, or something ridiculous like that, when we see somebody who is sinning? Or do we say, there's hope? What you're doing is wrong, and you need Jesus. Let me introduce you to the Savior. That's not being judgmental, is it? That's giving hope and an answer and giving somebody joy that they can have in Christ. That is a right thing to do. Uh, There is a difference between being discerning 
and being judgmental. There's a difference between iron sharpening iron and one of the irons thinking that they are the blacksmith. Uh, so we don't, we don't run away in fear at the tension that people think, uh, what people think exists in the realm of judging. We speak the truth in love to point people to Jesus Christ, to life, to godliness, and, and this is hard, and have the same eagerness to hear other people speak into our lives as well. That's harder, isn't it? To have the same eagerness to hear other people speak into our lives as well. Verse 6 says this, I have applied, Paul writes, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers. So this passage has a lot of information on church leadership, but it's not just about church leadership. The last two chapters are not just about Paul and Apollos. They are applied to Paul and Apollos for the benefit of the church, for everyone. He says that you may learn by us examples not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. That's fighting, right? One against another. Uh, So we would have to be puffed up we would have to be puffed up to go beyond what is written. What is written, written meaning the word of God. Can we go beyond it? That is technically what legalism ends up looking like, to go beyond what scripture has to say. And then that judgmentalism, condemning people for not being just like me. You don't agree with me on my new parameters I put out there, and I'm condemning you for it. That's what's forbidden. That's what's forbidden. To have a law or new rules or values that God does not require or look for to go beyond what is written. This is rooted in me assuming that my opinion is more valid than what the word of God says. And it will always, always result in factions and divisions. One person or group of people thinking they are superior over another because of the beliefs. Because of their beliefs that aren't found anywhere in scripture. And remember, none of us are better. Verse 7 says, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? Grace. Remember, grace is unmerited favor. Me being given what I did not deserve. If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So praise God for his glorious grace. We have salvation in Christ, provided through his shed blood on the cross because of grace. We have victory over death and hell because of grace. We have freedom from our previous bondages because of grace. We get to be servants of Christ because of grace. We have the word of God revealed to us and understood by us because of God's grace. We have the roles and relationships that we've been given, that have been given to us within the church for our edification because of grace. We have a hope and a future that is secured because of grace. And we're going to receive a reward for our works because of grace. So let's ask this series of questions. Who am I? Who are you? Uh, Identity is a huge thing, isn't it? What do I identify as? 
Who am I? Who are you? We are sinners saved by grace, bought with the precious price of the blood of Jesus Christ. Why are any of us as mature as we are, though none of us have arrived? Why have you come however far along you have in your growth? The reason is because God has committed to work in our hearts and lives to progressively conform us to the image of Christ. I could have just said, because God. (laughs) Right? And he isn't going to stop. He's not going to quit until the job's done. He's promised it. What is our role in relationship to Christ? Through God's favor. We might want to say we're fortunate enough to be in this position, but through God's favor, we get to be his subordinate servants and stewards and his joint heirs, both and. What is the role of leaders and pastors from this passage? To serve Jesus first. Not people first, not organizations first, not traditions first, not even denominations first. Jesus first. Jesus. And to faithfully preach and teach the word of God. And what is our role, all of us, in relationship with each other? To humbly, humbly serve together in unity. Building up and being built up by others as we pursue Christ. When we all function as servants and as stewards with and for each other and all for the glory of God, we all benefit, every one of us. And we will all build each other up and be built up by each other. And with all of that said, with all of this being done in the direction that we're headed, where does all of the praise and the glory and the thanks go? It's all to him to the giver of every, not just most, not some, to the giver of every good and perfect gift. Praise the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for your goodness to us. Uh, Father, on one uh, hand from this passage, this text, I pray... that you would use me, that I would be humbled to know and believe that your word is better, that your truth is the truth, and that you would faithfully use me to accurately portray the truth of your word, faithfully, that you'd be honored and glorified by that. I pray for us as a church, God, may we be humbled by your great love for us, by your great grace for us, May we be discerning according to your word. And may we speak into each other's lives in a way that brings life, that brings grace, that brings health and stability because it's your truth. It's the truth. God, help us to be strong together as a church for your honor and your glory. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.